is Block by Block, a community news program from WPPM-LP, Philadelphia 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Barbara Martin-Ellis. In the next half hour, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about a youth power summit that brought local groups working with young people together, how different forms of grief can affect people, and a new art exhibition at the Free Library exploring aspects of the Black experience. But first, Block by Block reporter Brett Roman Williams has been looking into stories of people in our region seeking justice for unsolved homicides as part of a series called Left in the Dark. Today, he brings us the stories of two people who are at different points in their journey one who has seen their case resolved by law enforcement, and another who is still seeking answers about the murder of a loved one. For tonight's episode, we delve into a journey very close to my heart, the challenging path faced by families of unsolved homicides, a path I've walked since my brother Derek's untimely death. Meet Stanley Crawford, a father who turned his grief into action after his son's murder in 2018. Unlike many, Stanley's relentless pursuit led to justice for his son. The story is one of resilience, showing how determination and faith can bring change in even the darkest times. My name is Stanley Crawford. Most people call me Brother Stanley. September the 8th of 2018, 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, my son, William Aboje Shamir Crawford, waiting for his sister to open the door. There was these individuals stalking him to murder him. While waiting at the hospital for the unfortunate news of his son's passing, Stanley used this as an opportunity to console his loved ones. When we get to the hospital, in my spirit, I know the inevitable had occurred. And what that was, that my son did not make it. The willing that took place once the doctor told us that my son did not make it was unbelievable. I did not have a chance to well because I was running around consoling as many people as I could during that period of time. While revenge could have been an option for Stanley and his loved ones, they chose another route, a route of compassion. I had resigned myself to not unleashing another murdering crew. I didn't want to bring the same pain and agony on another family. So I listened to my spirit and my spirit say, do the work that I've done in order to bring that information that was needed for law enforcement to do their job. And essentially, Stanley became his own detective. I had done enough work that I had created what I call a dossier on those participating in my son's murder. As I was doing research, I picked up more information about other people's murders. Other people, like Terry Jenkins, and her son, Tejan Jenkins, whose 2020 murder remains unsolved. Tejan was murdered on July 24th, 2020, on a Friday evening in the middle of the COVID pandemic. The moment Terry arrived at the hospital, the police had no answers for her. Uncertainty began to creep up on her. They took him to Presbyterian Hospital. I wasn't allowed in the hospital because it was COVID. What condition is my son in? And the police officers kept saying they didn't know. Now, Stanley's well-known in his community, right? His connections run deep. He managed to pull together crucial leads about his son's case, all from the neighborhood. But here's the thing. Even with that info in hand, both he and Terry hit roadblocks with the police. Makes you think, doesn't it? how that relationship between the streets and the cops really shapes these investigations. The homicide unit, their nonchalantness 
is another pain and agony that the family members have to deal with. Because when you have information and you're willing to give the information, but it falls on deaf ears, that's another nail in your emotional coffin. If the community, our community, the people that we're with every day, all day, that we watch and grow up, that we're watching their kids play, that we know their grandmoms and grandpops aren't given the information. If the detective is home in his bed at night when it happened, how is the detective going to solve the crime if the whole community turns their back? And the stories of Stanley and Terry, I see echoes of my own struggle for justice from my brother Derek. We were all entwined in Philadelphia's ongoing gun violence crisis, worsened by COVID-19 and deep-seated racial tensions by the police and the black and brown community. During that time frame, the pandemic, there was also the George Floyd incident. So it was protests going on. It was defunding the police going on. There was a surge, an influx of crime, all kinds. And the city didn't have the police personnel to handle the crime. Both Stanley and Terry despite their different experiences with justice, bring unique insights into the debate on policies like defunding the police or the implementation of stop and frisk. The boy who killed my son, you think he could move around without weapon? Every stop and frisk is not a bad stop and frisk because that stop and frisk probably saved my life and somebody else's life. I don't think defunding the police department is going to benefit the causes that the people that demand it it's not going to benefit them the way that they think it should. It's going to get worse because now it may not be overtime. It may not be promotions. It may not be, let's hire some more police officers. So then crime will continue to rise. So where does this leave us? Stanley, he channeled his grief into action, creating the BMCC, or the Black Male Community Council, turning his personal tragedy into a beacon of hope for others. Terry, she's made a big move starting anew in a different state. And me, I'm here, continuing to bring these stories to light because every story, every voice matters in our fight for justice and understanding. This is Brett Roman Williams, and you're listening to Left in the Dark on Block by Block. Stay tuned for more. When most people think about grief, they think about mourning the loss of a loved one. But people can experience grief over many different sorts of losses. Block by Block reporter E. Marie Lambert brings us this story about how some people in our community are dealing with different forms of grief in their own ways. I spoke with Dr. Jamie Eady, known as Dr. J. She is a grief doula with the Anti-Violence Partnership in Philadelphia, as well as provides education, counseling, and direct end-of-life services for individuals or families with her own organization called Thoughtful Transitions. In her words, she is a grief doctor or grief whisperer and a death companion. There are a lot of titles that go with what I do. The academic title is a thanatologist, which is simply the scientific study of death, dying, grief, and bereavement. But I am also a public theologian, degreed in theology, And my work is simply to journey with people through grief and trauma so that they come out on the other side feeling more like themselves. And I journey with people toward their last breath. So not traumatic death, say out in the street, something happens violently, but 
just natural aging, we know that we don't live in these bodies forever. And so what does it look like to prepare for your last breaths? I wanted to know how she manages the weight of other people's bereavement without feeling sad or burdened. She says that this work is her calling and ministry. I'll say this, 75% of the time, I do really well. I am able to be with you in your grief and I honor the practices and rituals that help me with my own grief, as well as help me sort of let go of sometimes the heaviness that comes with being with people in grief. But when she finds herself being pulled under, she sticks to a strategic ritual of self-care practices that includes all things lavender for its calming properties. She seeks the companionship of close friends that are intentional about lifting her from the blues and her last dose of television before bed are syndicated sitcoms like Living Single and Golden Girls. She also sees her therapist regularly. Dr. J also shared her recommended strategies for supporting a loved one or a friend during the grieving process. Give people the full range of emotions that are due to them. Space to name, space to feel, recognizing there's no timetable, and then don't try to fix. You can't replace what has been lost. I don't care if they get another spouse. I don't care if they get another job, if they have another child. You cannot replace the thing that has been lost. And so don't go in trying to fix. Go in with the idea that I want to be with you in your pain. And I think that's where we start our journey with accompanying people through grief. That was Dr. Jamie Eady. Here's the story of a young woman who talks about grieving a former lifestyle. Allende Jenkins is 32 years old, and less than a year ago, she suddenly became the guardian of five of her young cousins. She says when she identified the emotions she was feeling as grief, she was able to give herself the grace she would afford someone that recently experienced a loss. I was thinking of grief as the loss of something physical or a person. Now, I think of that a little differently. I'm dealing with myself in a way that I would deal with an individual who did lose someone that is very close to them. So being kind to myself, extending grace to myself, celebrating some of those small wins and even celebrating some small losses. But it's changing the way that I'm dealing with it because before I was just pushing things down like this is a part of being an adult. It's hard. You lose people, you lose things, life goes on, girl, like, keep going. But then I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. Grief has many faces. While Allende grieves the loss of a lifestyle and accepts her new role as a parent, Dion Carroll speaks about a friendship breakup that felt like a death. I had a friend, a wonderful music friend, and in our urban world, we call them homies. <laughs> he was my cut-up partner. What happened was... He began to date. Nothing wrong with that. There was no love interest on our part. But when he began to date, obviously there's more time with her. I didn't have a problem with that, but I no longer had a best friend. He like totally severed as if I never existed. So when this particular loss happened, it felt like abandonment. It felt like you left me. It felt like rejection. Did you recognize that loss as grief or were you just angry and hurt? I did grieve the loss 
of the friendship. I didn't really get angry. I was just immensely sad. I said, I can't believe that this is happening, but I've accepted because if he's happy, I only want the best for you. I think it would be very wrong of me to wish you ill will or like, "Mm -mm, I know how to move on. I know how to still love you and not let you back in, (laughs) but I still miss all the good times. Connecting the emotions of profound losses with the station of grief seems to give those that experience them permission to feel without guilt or shame and to treat themselves with care and compassion. I spoke to Shango Jamal Lewis about the recent passing of his mother. He was her only child and she was his only parent. Before his mother died last summer, she had battled and survived cancer years before. Shango talks about grief during that process and how grief is ongoing. So there's a lot of grief that goes on and just the uncertainty of it all makes you grieve the normal life, the life that existed before that diagnosis came. As the only child, where did you find support for your grief and how did you manage it? I tried to keep everything else normal and I also tried to keep my interactions with my mother as normal as could be, meaning you want to be sensitive to that individual if they want to talk about it, that's something different. But I wanted life to be as normal as it could be given that very undesirable situation. I had to say to her, let's not make every single conversation just about this illness. Shango shared that his experience as an only child made him acutely aware that he was now an orphan. He was alone in his loss and in his grief. There was no sibling to commiserate. He acknowledges that grieving is as unique as fingerprints. He suggests being patient with yourself and to extend grace to yourself and others that are well-meaning in their efforts to pull you from a dark place. He says that grief is not linear, it has no order, and that grief will be with you in some form for the rest of your life. Whether you are grieving the loss of a person, a job, a relationship, a life you had or had anticipated, your grief is valid. This piece is a preview of a longer radio special that E. Marie Lambert is producing for WPPM, exploring different aspects of the grieving process. More details about that special will be coming soon. Visitors to the central branch of the Free Library on the Parkway will soon see art from local Black artists in the hallways. It's part of a new exhibit curated by Doriana Diaz, a Germantown-based visual artist. Block by Block reporter Kirsten Adams spoke with Diaz about the exhibit, which opens this week. Doriana Diaz is concerned with the in-between spaces, the spaces between race, gender, and sexuality that remain gray and are still unexplored. In her latest exhibit, opening November 17th at Parkway Central Library, Diaz and 11 other Black artists elaborate through photography, film, collage, and more on what it means to exist within the in-between. Before that, Diaz joined me in Aubrey Arboretum to talk about the creativity that comes from operating in gray spaces and her hopes for attendees exploring the show. I just wanted to tap into that space that is the in-between. I think for so many of us that life is really black and white and it becomes very absolute. 
and I really wanted to focus on the nuance and complexity of black life. That's where I think the sweetest parts are, is in the in-between spaces. Um, there have been times in my life where I have felt really in-between or inside out or unknowing about belonging or what home means or what community means. And so it's sort of like a investigation of those spaces in the in-between where it's not this or that or absolute. It's in that gray area, which I think is a really important place to be. And I think that it's what has served our survival in a lot of ways is operating from that gray space. So the spaces in the in-between is kind of catering to like what that idea means, how we live with that, how we embrace chaos, how we embrace blackness, how we make presence with blackness, the fullness of it, the complexity of it, all of that. And so that's kind of where the idea for the in-between spaces came. And I think that in some ways the work within the exhibition was created by these artists from that space. And so I really wanted to highlight those creations. And I know for me, a lot of my work has come from this exciting place of like having a deep and high understanding of self and connection to something bigger than me that allowed me to create those pieces. So I think that that is where the name came from and I hope that that's what's expressed in the exhibition and that viewers can start to tilt perspective in regard to like how do we live from this space instead of being in such absolutes how can we embrace nuance we've been working on this exhibition for five months total and it's been like on my spirit much longer than that and so I think that there is a correlation between art and libraries I also think that the collection of art that libraries carry is extremely beyond. Like if you go to particular sections in the library and you look for even just books around collage, there's hundreds of them that you can check out or sit in the library and look through. So there's access to the arts. It's inherently there. The point of it is to continue to forge a more public understanding about the importance of those spaces. And that's why I'm really excited to be hosting this exhibition in a library instead of like, you know, a traditional gallery space. It's been really exciting and almost really dreamlike, actually. I think the closer that I get to the launch of it, the more proud I become of the opportunity. Like a lot of this credit goes to my contributing artists that they trusted me enough with their work to put it in this space for four months, you know, and have it be present in the world for people to view it. And I think this is really incredible because there's a lot of heavy access. Like people use that hallway where this art will be displayed a lot. You don't have to pay to see this exhibition. You don't have to even know that you're gonna see the exhibition. You just happen to be walking down the hallway because it connects different parts of the library together. So I'm really hoping and I feel really honored to be able to have that space, to have blackness exist there for that amount of time. My hope and desire is for people to honor that space no matter who walks through it and that those who do walk through it know their place. I really want there to be genuine relationships built from this opportunity that go beyond and well into the future so that we can continue to make this a community practice and a very intentional community practice is to insert ourselves in spaces where we wouldn't normally be seen and show everything that we are. 
So I really hope that, yeah, relationships birth from this. I really hope that people walk away with a deeper understanding of self, a deeper understanding of what community can look like, especially from the lens of developing an artistic practice. And I also just really hope people walk away feeling loved just a little bit more. You know, those are my hopes. As a non-traditional educator, I'm always looking for opportunities that empower young people. So not too long ago, I traveled to Senator Art Haywood's inaugural Youth Power Summit in Germantown, where I was surrounded by organizations eager to help young people carve out their paths to success. First, I spoke to Senator Haywood and then other vendors who shared the stories behind their initiatives and how they're making a real impact on the lives of our youth. We're at MLK High School for our first Youth Power Summit. We were able to invite over 90 young people. We have 30 different organizations that provide services to young people. We have a number of workshops. I'm getting ready to go to a workshop on entrepreneurship, but there's one on creative arts and mental health. Many of the um, interesting to young people. Many of the organizations wanted to let young people know about career training. How you doing? My name is Steven Shears. Our company is called Building Businesses for Kids. We help the kids understand that they can make a business around the things that they're into. So whether they want to build the sneakers themselves, whether they want their own sneakers, or whether they want to resell the sneakers and stuff themselves. So we help them figure out what path they want to do, and then we help them understand how to build their business around it. Also help them understand that their life altogether is the business. It's not just the business and then their life can be separate. My name is Jay Bagley. I'm with Skylark Motion Incorporated, which fly unmanned aircrafts. Drones? Drones. So it's innovative and it's an opportunity for our community to get engaged with hundreds of jobs that are being produced through drones. The police department's just registered to fly drones. If a student wants to be a lifeguard, Atlantic Ocean, they're flying drones to rescue people or to see if any sharks is in the water. We're using drones in construction. We're using drones in the news. We're using drones to do real estate and so much more. So this is our opportunity because of this technology is innovative that we can put in our kids' hands and they can have a better quality of life. My name is Dominique Butler-Jones. I am the Youth and Young Adult Navigator. I'm here representing the Pennsylvania Career Link. What brought me here, you know what, is just for the empowerment and the embetterment of our youth. Letting them know about so many great resources and opportunities that are out there. A lot of our youth want, but they don't know where to go. And that's what we want to let them know is for those who are looking for educational next step opportunities, looking for employment, just to bring some income to help support their families. They can come to CareerLink and get those supportive services, but also CareerLink is connected with everyone. We're here as a community to serve our community, and that's what my passion is. And so if a young person came to CareerLink, what might they find? 
Oh, they would find a lot of things. We work with a lot of apprenticeship opportunities, training opportunities. Uh, youth can come in at CareerLink and just sit down with us, and we can help them find employment, get them connected to other great resources for scholarship opportunities, for next steps post-high school, for those who do need to go back to school, maybe get their GED high school diploma. We connect them there as well, too. There's so many opportunities. Other groups were there to let young people know about services that help with schoolwork. I'm Dante Timbers. I'm with uh, Voice. That's Victoria's Urban Outreach Tutoring Service, which is a nonprofit. We currently do free tutoring at the Treehouse on Mondays, and we're looking for volunteers, please. And what age group you're tutoring? Is there like a specialty, STEM or anything, or is it just come one, come all? The goal is to really help everyone, but as far as educational, academic tutoring services, we try to keep that K through 12, but as far as information, we try to span that to everyone in all ages. And some spoke about a different kind of youth power, civic engagement. Hi, my name is Sarita Lewis, and my organization is Urban Seek. We actually do community and civic engagement, working with high school students to empower them so that when they are of leadership age, they'll be able to step into the shoes properly. So what we do is work with high school students who are interested in learning about civics. We teach them about the difference between civic engagement and community engagement and how they blend and how they can actually make the community better based off of the things that they care about. We do a lot of voter education programming because that really is one of the stepping stones necessary. But we also teach them about their communities and give them points of pride so that they can be really excited about where they live. And for some young people, advocating for the issues that matter to them can become a paying job. Hello, my name is Maria Mendez. I was born and raised in South Philly. I am 19 years old. I personally, as a youth, struggled a lot with just a lot of neglect from the system, from my personal family. And so, you know, just a lack of resources made me unmotivated to, like, just want to be, like, even go to college. I didn't even think I was, like, enough to go to college. And so... When I was 16, um, George Floyd was murdered, and I went to the protests because I wanted to. Like, I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, I want to be a part of this movement. And so then Juntos, the organization that I'm currently tabling with here, invited me to walk with them. And so ever since then, I became a part of their youth group. And from there, I worked with them for a year fighting with their Sanctuary Schools campaign where um, it all started because a mother got picked up from ICE outside of a public school and teachers didn't know what to do. And so Juntos was just like, what the heck? Why didn't the school know what to do? And then they started looking into the issues that happened in their school. So we notice right now, like, a lot of schools suffer from asbestos. We have lead in our water, but schools are going to put metal detectors in and not even give us clean water. We don't have access to nurses or counselors while we're at school, but um, there sure as hell will be a cop at our school criminalizing us. And so that's why I started getting more involved. After that, I became an ambassador at Juntos, which is a, Juntos does a lot of youth leadership development. And pretty much what an ambassadorship is at Juntos is youth get to work two to three hours a week and then get a stipend at the end of the ambassadorship. You can find a list of all the groups that participated in the Youth Power Summit by visiting senatorhaywood.com slash event slash youth dash summit dash 2023. That's the numbers two, zero, two, and three. 
This season of Block by Block is produced by Kirsten Adams, Rashida Jamu, Kathy Brown, Kami Kong, Emarie Lambert, and Brett Roman Williams. And I'm your host, Barbara Martin Ellis. Emarie Lambert is our board operator tonight. Brad Linder is radio news manager for WPPM. Peter Liu is radio operations manager, and Allison Durham is WPPM's radio program manager. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of Block by Block, featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region. You can find past episodes of the show on Philly Cam SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Consider supporting Philly Cam this Giving Tuesday on November 28th by making a donation to support our community radio station, WPPM 106.5 FM. WPPM provides people in Philadelphia and South Jersey with opportunities to broadcast their own non-commercial radio programs and present content that's hyper-local, educational, thoughtfully crafted, and rich in personality. Donors like you support diversifying Philadelphia's media landscape by empowering everyday media makers to tell our own stories. We're hoping to bring in 100 unique contributions, and all donors' names will be entered in our Given Tuesday raffle, featuring a gift basket of treats from friends of PhillyCam. You can make a donation at phillycam.org support.